I think success in general for a true artist is just being able to be successful enough to be as creatively free as you can be. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Monica Nebbies on the show. Monica is a Seattle-based comedian who was headlined at the Bumbershoot Arts Festival and opened for comics like Michael Ian Black, Ari Shafir, Sarah Colonna, and Nick Swartzen. She also hosts two podcasts, Hug Life with co-host Mike Coletta, where they highlight positive news stories and put a positive spin on things that folks usually find daunting, and Dumb Pitches in the Helium Podcast Network, where Monica talks to successful people about their worst ideas. Monica is also the host and creator of the documentary series 80 for 80, where she conducts hilarious interviews with folks over the age of 80. Her most recent comedy albums, Mostly Finger Guns, as well as the comedic-guided meditation album Chill, both debuted in late 2020 and went number one on the comedy charts. Monica tours nationally and internationally, and her albums can be heard on three different Sirius XM radio channels, including Laugh USA, Raw Dog, and She's So Funny. Her albums are also streaming on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon. But the best place to buy Monica's albums if you want to support Monica, rather than Jeff Bezos' next trip to space, is directly from her website, monicanevy.com. Another great resource to get to know Monica's material is her YouTube channel, which is, as my daughter Emma would say, really poppin', with hilarious videos and bits, parts of her stand-up sets, her podcast episodes, her 80 for 80 interviews, and bonus material for members only. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Monica Nevy. Monica Nevy, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thank you for having me. So I saw your show in Yakima. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. And thanks for making the trip over to Yakima. We don't have a lot of folks that travel from outside to put themselves out there in that way in Yakima. It's not a big comedy town, as you know as you probably picked up on when you booked the gig. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, you did great. It was a nice set. I watched it streaming. I wasn't there, but I did get a chance to see the camera turn on the audience and, and I could see what you were talking about in terms of the awkwardness <laughs> of being able to <laughs> see every set of eyeballs that's in that room. That's fine. Uh, how, how different is that room than most of the gigs that you have on the West Side? Um, I mean, just most comedy gigs in general are that stereotypical, like brick walls, low ceiling, you know, a lot of people real close together, which obviously right now isn't as much, but it's like a really tall ceiling. It was really bright in there. I could see everybody. And then they had tables at certain seats, but not, that's what I figured out later was that they sat everyone where the tables were. So there was like, you know, three or four rows of people and then a huge space and then another row of people because there was more tables in the back. So it was, you know, comedies and atmosphere. And when you're next to people and they're laughing, you laugh harder, you know, things like that. And so right. they were spaced out weird, which is what a lot of places are spaced differently right now too. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was just, I could see everybody and <laughs> it was real bright. It's a beautiful room, but interesting for comedy. It is. It is. It's, I think it's an old church. Yeah. 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 But it was nice to see a comedy show and people show up for it 
in Yakima. We just don't see it happening very often. So Yeah, I had done some shows, you know, a few years ago at different places. I think um, I've done the, the Capitol Theater before. And then there was like a little comedy club for a little while. Mm-hmm. But it just, it nothing really Was that the one that was in Sela? Um, that was a different one. I know what you're talking about, but, um, I never actually did that one. Although I know the lady that owns it, um, or owned it. No, it was inside of a hotel and it was like in Yakima, but it was maybe only open for like six months or so. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. were your impressions of, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, um, of the Yakima crowd that you faced Saturday night versus maybe towns that are a little more progressive? Um, <sighs> It's an interesting, let's see, uh, they were very mixed uh, age demographic, which makes things a little bit more complicated because it's like, well, I can do jokes that I know an older crowd would like, or I could do jokes that I know a younger crowd would like or whatever. But then there's a mix. So it's like, well, some of you are going to like this and some of you are going to like, not that all my materials right. like only for one person. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, a lot of my new stuff is kind of about being a millennial and also like parenting as a millennial. And so it works for everybody, but obviously it really hits with like a millennial crowd. And so there was like a few tables where they were like, this is the greatest thing ever. And then, you know, some of the older people were like, all right, yeah, that's fine. What was Um, the lady with the puppet doing during the millennial uh, bit? She, that's the thing. Larry, the puppet really liked me, (laughs) (laughs) which is why it was a little distracting. But yeah, if you guys didn't, watch or weren't there there was a woman in the back row that had a puppet with her like a big one a full full, uh what do they call that a ventriloquist uh yeah uh, like dummy i guess but yeah yeah, it's like yeah yeah, and so she like larry would react to my jokes he'd laugh he'd put his he would wave his hand a lot when he liked you know which is why (laughs) i eventually had to say something because i was like what is happening right um you and can't go an ho- entire show without addressing the puppet. In the yeah, room. exactly. And yeah. so we talked for a little bit, but she wouldn't talk to me. She would talk through the puppet and put <laughs> like her, and she was in the back row, so I couldn't really hear her. So right. it didn't go on for very long. But then, and I don't know this person. I don't know what, <laughs> why mm-hmm. she travels with a puppet. But as soon as I get off stage, the owner of the, or I guess the manager of the theater had told the headliner, Brad, that, don't talk to her. And I was like, okay. oh, goodness. Well, I would have been good to know. Like, you know, they had warned him that there was a lady with a puppet in there and just don't acknowledge it. Yeah. Well, and you don't so, want to encourage puppets. That's yeah, just not. Well, I think they thought there was like a reason for it, which she did, of course, come after the show and talk to me for like way too long. <laughs> and oh, oh, no. Told me about that Larry is two months old, but then she owns a, a pool and spa store. Okay. Yakima. All right. And so she ended up showing me YouTube videos of their commercials. <laughs> wow. Yeah, huh. it was interesting. But what I had gathered from the experience, because I think just even after the show there, she had about two glasses of wine, was that she was pretty intoxicated. So Okay. All right. That makes sense. I think sense. they were a little more nervous well, about that than she was. I think she was just drunk. So <laughs> I guess if you look at the bright side. She gave you some material to work with. I mean, yeah. you've got to be able to work that into future bits somehow. I'm going to talk about it for sure. I mean, I, I'm going <laughs> to... They had filmed that, you know, so we get a copy of it. Right. And I kind of want to tell the story and then put the clips of 
me talking to the puppet <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> up with it and just put it on YouTube or something. Because it is one of the, you know, Brad's been doing comedy for like 35 years and he was like, that's never happened. <laughs> you know, like I've never mm-hmm. had anybody with a puppet in the audience. <laughs> Neither have I. So <laughs> I would guess that every show that you do, there's something that comes at you. There's something that you weren't expecting that requires you to be really on your toes and that that develops chops in terms of just improvisational skills and being able to be nimble on stage. Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, I think with any art, nothing goes exactly as you hope, as you plan, you know, you're like, Mm -hmm. this is the exact jokes I'm going to do in this order. And maybe they don't go or, you know, any musical performance or I would assume with art, I know with like me actually drawing or something, I'm like, that does not look anything like I had hoped, but um, I'm not good at it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's always a bit different, but you can, I can tell now before I get on stage what it's going to be like, I guess, you know, like you can tell if they're drunk, you can tell if they're quiet, you can tell if they're conservative or more liberal or what, like you can kind of tell based on either the host or just, judging people most of my job is just judging people (laughs) Um, (laughs) what's gonna happen so that comes with time for sure because you've seen something like most audiences in your career and then um the crowd work really for me maybe at like because i've been doing it a little over 10 years um maybe around seven years i was like i'm not really afraid of anything anymore I performed at a lot of casinos on like a Wednesday or something, you know, like mm-hmm. not ideal situations. So I'm not afraid to talk to people. That's not really my plan sometimes, but if that's what happens, that's what happens. And sometimes they like that more than my material, which is kind of annoying, but that's okay. <laughs> so crowd work, just for my listeners who are not familiar with comedy speak, tell us what crowd work is versus your set. Right. So in some people... I, well, I want them to believe that I'm just making everything up on the spot when I'm doing my material. But mm-hmm. normally you go up and you have either an idea or an actual set list of like what jokes you want to do, what you want to talk about, things you've already written that you've been working on or, you know, that you got this kind of order figured out. And then crowd work is what happens when you just start talking to the crowd instead. And so that can be your classic, like, what do you do for a living? You know, mm-hmm. or... For me, most of the times, I don't get heckled very often in like a really negative way, but I do get drunk people just yelling out and sometimes it's pretty positive, but it's like so distracting that you have to acknowledge it or, you know, there's a lady with a puppet and you're like, we all see the puppet, right? Right. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) crowd work is just that like riffing is what people talk about a lot, kind of just going off what the audience is either saying or doing or asking them questions. So it's that unscripted riffing work with the crowd. Yeah. Isn't there a comedian who is really known for his crowd work? I think his name is Todd. Todd oh, Barry. Todd Barry. Yeah. And he has an album called Crowd Yeah, work, he did I a believe. special just of crowd work. It's really fun to watch. There's a few uh, guys like that. Ian Bag is like that where he's just kind of known for it, which is really fun. It's nice to be able to add it to, to my act because one, sometimes I do get tired of my own material, but also when the crowd is like wild, it's so difficult to be like, okay, shh, listen to my jokes. You know, it's right. just, it's easier and sometimes more fun and interesting to just be like, all right, 
what do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> right. Know. Well, I think crowd work for me, and I, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a connoisseur of comedy, but I'm, I'm a big fan. I've mm -hmm. been to the comedy store multiple times and I have, my first comedy album was Steve Martin. Yeah. Uh, and my mom bought that for me when I was in grade school. And ever since then, a uh, huge comedy fan. But I think what separates for me, the, the real comics from the folks that maybe are just rehashing their old set over and over again is the crowd work. And, uh, you know, Dave Chappelle's great at it. Um, you know, Patton Oswalt, Todd Berry, of course, uh, you know, famous for it. But I thought you did wonderfully with a tough crowd and a tough setup in terms of everybody being spread out. And then, of course, the demographics are working against you on that versus Brad, who comes in, you know, a little more in their age group and his material is a little more, I think, broader, I would say, in terms yeah. of that type of appeal. But you did great. Thanks. Yeah, I do think that the comfortability and the crowd work and stuff just comes from having done it for quite a while. And you, it'll be good again. Not that that was bad, you know, but it's like, this is interesting. And a lot of the crowd work ends up having me think about something else and then sometimes turns into material. So mm -hmm. it works out. So you went to Seattle, Seattle University or Seattle Pacific? I went to Seattle University. Okay. My alma mater too. I went there for law school. Oh, really? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. I went to law school when their campus was in Tacoma. So I never got to see the Seattle campus. Oh, well, back that's in very the pretty. But... Late 90s. Yeah. But uh, so what did you study? I studied sports and exercise science, actually. Okay. And that was right in line with your basketball career. You're kind of hoping to go that direction. Yeah. That was kind of the other option was uh probably to coach i think that would be what i ended up doing had i not started i started stand up my junior year in college so um probably a couple years in i was just like this is what i want to do and i'll figure out how to make it my career mm -hmm. but um yeah i thought about cuz you know you could do athletic training or exercise physiology like testing and stuff which is really interesting to me but stand up just always felt like more of the direction I wanted to go in if I couldn't play anymore. So, and so who were your influences before you made that decision to get up on stage for the first time? Before that's a funny, okay. I used to listen to a lot of Dimitri Martin. Mm. Um, I was a very like what you say is funny kind of person, like you don't need to be too physical. I really like Nick Swartzen. That was one of the first people I saw in like Comedy Central where I was like, I love this. Mm -hmm. um, Maria Bamford was someone, that was probably the first woman I had ever seen, like actually have a special. And I was like, oh, we're allowed to do that? That's great. Um, yeah, just people, it's kind of like, not that I'm like any of those three, but I like the, just what you say and you think about it and that's great. You don't need to be doing like high kicks and jumping off the stage for me right. at least to right. enjoy it. So <laughs> I'm trying to find the common denominator for all three of those. And I think if I were to pick a word that ties all of them together, it's vulnerability where they're just putting themselves out there and almost no ego whatsoever for yeah, any of those that, comics. That would make sense to me. I think it is like a, their ability to continue to dissect just normal things and how it relates to them. I think maybe that's the biggest thing. I never even thought about that. People ask me a lot like, oh, well, what do you talk about? And it's like, well, I talk about things that have happened to me. You know, I talk about my family and jobs I've had and whatever, you know, the world, but in 
through my eyes kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. I don't just talk about politics or I don't just do one-liners or whatever. And I feel like those three, it's kind of the same things. They always kind of relate it to themselves with that yeah. vulnerability, I guess, even though they're all pretty different from each other. Yeah, That's but they're all point. making fun of themselves yeah. to some degree and and pointing to the the ridiculousness of their own existence. Right. <laughs> and or personalities. Thought processes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, which is um those guys I mean, I've been lucky enough to either see or work with all three of them, which is uh, kind of crazy when you're, you know, I was 14 watching them and now I'm with them. But none of them have really changed the fact that they can be vulnerable. Because we've we've all seen someone we liked when we were younger, and then they get really famous, and then the the topics don't really relate to you anymore, or something like that, you know. And then I worked with Nick Swartzen maybe two years ago, and I was just blown away with how incredibly relatable and just hilarious his stand up still was. And I mean, he was a great stand up to start with, so it's not like he didn't have any foundation or anything, but people know him from these movies sometimes. And then they're like yelling out movie titles at him while he's trying to do his, <laughs> do his material. And he's like, yeah, I was in that. All right, cool. You know? <laughs> um, but he also like had some really funny material about filming certain movies and not, and not in like a name droppy way. Like I've seen a lot of comics start to talk about SNL or whatever they were on. And you feel like they're just kind of, you, I don't know, trying to impress you, but he just had really good material about like the actual work of filming a movie and it kind of addressed people yelling it out and then he would move on and yeah. and to like, you know, normal, I don't stuff about dogs or whatever. It just, you know, um, really impressive and all still really kind of writing in the same way. I think. Every time I think of Nick Swartzen, I, the image of him on Reno 911 in his short shorts and his roller skates, I just cannot stop thinking about that. It, it is the funniest character <laughs> on so Reno nine one one. Well, yeah. and he he has a bit about um, his mom telling her friends that he's on a a cop show because oh, he's yeah? from Minnesota, you know. So she's all sweet about it, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, <laughs> you know." And then she's got to tell him that he's a gay prostitute on rollerblades or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, the and I I'm trying to think of the comics that are probably the polar opposite of Bamford and Swartz and 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 Dimitri, and those would be for for me like Jamie Fox, Eddie Murphy, Anthony Jeselnik, that are very ego driven. Right. You yeah, know, I but, could hear. Yeah, Jeselnik and yeah. I yeah. mean, like in terms of the 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 types of comics out there. Um, I totally see your comedy fitting in with the vulnerable side of things, the vulnerable end of the spectrum. And that's the type of comedy that I really appreciate because uh, it's it's putting yourself out there in a way that exposes your underbelly. You know, it's like, this is me and <laughs> accept it or not. Yeah. And um, yeah, I listened to your album and mm-hmm. uh, mostly Finger Guns, is that what it's called? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing. And you, you've just got a great vibe and your your career. Tell me where you're at right now. How would you, if you're sitting on a bus and there's a, um, you know, maybe a, a grandma type who asks you, you know, what do you do for, for a living? And, you know, what are, where are you at now and what are your career goals? How would you describe your career right now in comedy? Uh, well, obviously killing it because I'm on a bus with my grandma um no i (laughs) 
And I'm you're talking pre- to me too. So yeah. <laughs> when I first started, my goal was to have stand-up be the only thing that I do, have it be my career. And um, it's been about six years that it's been full-time. And some of those times were much more scary than others. But um, I, I like reevaluating what I want the future to look like and how I want this to continue kind of happens constantly. Um, I've had opportunities or experiences that kind of changed what I wanted to do. I think for a long time, I was like, oh, I could write for a TV show. That sounds great. And then I made a documentary series and I was like, oh, I like making my own stuff. I Mm. kind of really like unscripted, you know, like you just learn these different things. Um, Talk about 80 for 80 or? Yeah, 80 for 80. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. um, The main goal for me at this point is to continue to create things that I want to make and kind of cultivate this little fan base that is interested in exactly what I'm doing. You know, they know what they're into when they're coming to a show that they know what they're getting into. And um, it's, it's working so far. It's just a very slow burn. Like I feel like my whole career is just a bit of a slow burn, which is okay because I do feel like it's going to be what I want and I won't get this kind of confusion of, you know, I was on a TV show that has nothing to do and played a character that is nothing like my act. And then they are very confused when they come and see, you know, like mm-hmm. not that that's, I would gladly be on a TV show too, but, <laughs> but I like the idea of people knowing what they're coming to see and being excited to see that thing. And, um, you know, which then, brings you to dabble in different things and kind of create, you know, you got the podcasts and the documentary series and the meditation album and just weird different stuff so that there's a diverse uh, portfolio of things to find me through. But stand-up will always be the main focus, the main goal. The other things are so that people want to come and see me do stand-up. Yeah. So let's go back to your junior year. Okay. You decide to try stand-up for the first time. What were you thinking? And here I'm talking from the standpoint of a parent. You're in college. <laughs> what the hell are you thinking? Standing up on a stage doing stand-up. And what called you to that type of art? It's so interesting. I mean, none of it really makes sense on paper because I never did uh, any type of performance anything. I was an athlete and that was it. And um I think I had been on stage maybe twice when I was in elementary school, you know, nothing. I was pretty shy too, not a big, I get really nervous when I had to do like school projects and stuff. Um, But that was kind of a defense mechanism. When I was doing serious stuff, I would make a couple of jokes and it would make me feel a lot more comfortable if the class laughed versus, you know, making them cry or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, (laughs) So my junior year was actually, so I had been injured playing basketball. I tried to come back my sophomore year and I just had more and more injuries and it just wasn't looking like I was going to be able to continue to play. And that was what happened. I had to stop playing. I stayed with the team and I did an internship with them because it did, you know, fit the the uh, degree. Um, so it was about maybe eight months after that, that I, I had been writing jokes for probably two years. I knew what I would do if I got on stage. You know, I knew because you look it up online. I would I would Google like once a week, where do you go to do open mics in Seattle? It's still the same answer. Like, I don't know why I would look <laughs> it up so often. <laughs> um, 
but and then you know they have all these little like rules like don't do this don't do this uh don't ask the crowd how they're doing you get three minutes you get the light at this time you know whatever like i knew exactly how it was gonna go don't and ask for, the crowd how they're doing is that just considered filler or something yeah for well i don't open mic specifically you could right. do it if you're you know if it's a three-piece show but th- because there's 20 30 comics on a show and right. if everybody goes up and asks how they're doing you, you know gotta get to it yeah yeah we're, we we've answered this before um so i like knew what three minutes i would do i practiced in the shower like a lot um for for months i mean i'm had thought about it for a really long time and then the first time i tried to go to an open mic was supposed to be at Giggles in Seattle, which is um, notorious for being one of the worst venues um, uh, in in comedy history. People really? will say it. They've been on very pay- famous podcasts. Mark Marin mentioned it on WTF that it's like one mm-hmm. of the worst. Was. And so I had gone just because there was like two clubs in the area and that was one of them. And it was on this day that I didn't have to work or whatever, you know. And we go to walk up and the owner is outside and he's like, oh, we're closed, but we're going to reopen soon. And, you know, you can come back uh, to an open mic then, which was a weird because I didn't go back for about six months after that. And that club turned from a comedy club to a strip club (laughs) and then back to a comedy club eventually. (laughs) Now it's owned by different people, so it's fine. But uh, which is an interesting like maybe it wouldn't have gone well. You know, mm-hmm. so it was the universe saying like, hold on, don't do it quite yet. You know, um, so then it was about six months later. I did an open mic at laughs in Kirkland when it was in Kirkland. And um, I did it in January and did not know that resolution comedy was a thing. Uh, that wasn't my plan. It was just when I could go again, I guess I went, brought some friends to watch one week and then the host actually ended up knowing one of the guys I was with and he was like you know he's talking to me and I was like well I want to do that I want to try it and he's like oh just come next week just do it and so I did I mean I really I don't know why I needed him to tell me that I should do it I guess or something you're supposed to bring four people and I lied and said that I did you know just weird <laughs> well, I didn't want anybody to see yet right <laughs> um, right but I think I had, you know, thought about it for so long and it was January, which means the room is full with people that aren't doing stand-up. So it's a lot different than performing at an open mic where it's just comics and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it went really well my first time. Yeah. And so maybe that's why the first the first time I tried to go didn't work out or, you know, whatever, right. because this was the time I was supposed to do it. Um, so what's resolution comedy? When your your New Year's resolution is to do stand up, oh, and so got it. I got you. Yeah, okay. and that is a common rule with clubs is that to get up for the first few times, you're supposed to bring like six people or whatever. I so there's it. like a full room of people who aren't comics. Now I love doing open mics in January because I'm like, well, there's a great audience that doesn't know me, and here we go. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it went well. At that point, had you had the eight months of jokes that you wrote down before yeah. you got up on that stage? Yeah. Which is, I usually don't tell this part of the story, but um, two weeks later, (laughs) a friend of mine was working for like the student body at his college and they were doing a stand-up show and he's like, oh, well, I can get you time on this show. 
And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> be great. And he just continues to be like, okay, you can do seven minutes. Wait, I think I can get you more until he has me doing 15 minutes on this show at a college, which you're supposed to be like very clean at college. Like there's just so many things I don't know at this point about the industry and I'm just going with it. So mm-hmm. I did have all this material that I had written, but I have not tried it before. And I don't know what I'm doing, you know? So I end up doing the show, doing about 12 of the 15 minutes (laughs) based on what I have. Some of it is fine and good. And it was a really big crowd, which is so, you know, now you're like, yeah, a college show, like that would be awesome. But that's not how college shows are. You're you're in a cafeteria while people are eating. No one's paying attention. Um, And... I, but like some, like I had an abortion joke, like just stuff (laughs) I wouldn't do now and didn't think about then, you know? Um, oh man, it's painful to think about it now because it's like, I just knew so little. I had done two open mics and then was like, yeah, I'll do 15 minutes. Wow. College show, you know? That's a big step. So silly. But then, you know, and then there was plenty of, nights that didn't go well or new jokes that didn't go well. So I had a good start, which I think kept me holding on to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that very first night hadn't gone well, would I have kept doing it? I don't know. But So what does doing well feel like and look like and sound like? Because my definition, like I'm not a golfer, but I used to golf like maybe once a year at this convention I went to. And every time I golfed, it was awful. It was like, I was terrible at it. But if I just got one shot in like one drive, that was like, wow. You know, even if it's just lucky, I felt like the whole trip was worth it. And so how do you look at performance and the feedback that you're getting? Can one joke make it all worthwhile or how, how do you assess that? That's an interesting, I think that is true for some people. And then actually, um, <laughs> actually uh like helps me make sense of some other people's careers where they've just been doing open mics for 12 years and not well and you're like i don't know why you keep doing this but okay <laughs> um but that's what maybe it's i don't know it's their one golf tournament a year and mm-hmm. it feels good at one point um it needs to be a bit of a higher percentage for me to actually feel good about it than just one good shot but <laughs> it feels I mean, it feels amazing, obviously. It's almost like a a high. Um, it's still, for me, every time before I get on stage, I'm like, what a dumb concept. Like, I'm just going to say stuff that I thought of, and they're going to listen to me. And <laughs> usually they like it. It's just such a weird thing because it's not, you know, it's not poetry. It's not a song. It's not the same type of live performance that you would think of. You're like, I'm just going to talk. Mm-hmm. And you... Hopefully you like it. Um, it. From an open mic perspective, or if I'm doing something new, if if I did five brand new minutes and three of them got laughs, I'd probably feel like something's there. I can work with it. Yeah. But now it's like, sometimes I get really picky or like over analytical. Like Saturday was fine. It was a good set. They liked me. But the room itself was so weird and like the sound, it didn't sound like the normal, like, oh, I'm doing well, you know? Mm -hmm. So I still feel weird, like viscerally (laughs) Uh (laughs) because it doesn't quite sound the way that I want it to. I want them to clap and I want to, you know, um, 
stuff it, like that. It and, sounds like a socially distanced, uh, you know, performance hall. Yeah. You know, and and that's just not a comedy club. <laughs> right. Sound. It just doesn't sound the same. Yeah, right. It and it feels. I mean, oh my gosh, and nothing will feel worse than doing a Zoom show when everyone's muted. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't really complain too much anymore. But right. Yeah, I don't know what it is. There is something like just really incredible about thinking of something that you haven't told anyone yet, telling them, and then them really thinking it's funny. And you're like, I was right. I knew mm-hmm. it was funny. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. There's a little bit of like, I don't quite get the same. This is what I imagine it's like to be a musician, right? You walk out and everybody's like cheering and that that feels great even before you perform. You know, mm-hmm. like you have this like amped up. I don't quite feel like that. I feel like I need to prove myself first. And so just like with the school presentations, it takes me getting a laugh first to kind of go, okay, now I can be a little bit more comfortable every time I perform. So even if it was a crowd full of people that like were there to see me, loved me, already knew, you know, me from whatever else, I still feel like I have to give them what they're there for before I can feel comfortable. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to make sure they're not disappointed in what I'm doing. (laughs) As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So your process in terms of refining, are you constantly making adjustments when you get up on stage and you try something, and are you experimenting with timing, with switching wording, and is it a constant state of revising and you know redrafting i i I don't know how to describe it but you know changing your set to improve it i think that's pretty common for people and yes i'm always kind of moving things around and adding little parts and sometimes that'll take months where it's like i wrote this one part and then three months later i think of this other joke and you're like oh those go to together perfectly you know and Mm -hmm. so sometimes it takes time I, however, pretty normally, the joke is fairly formed when I first write it down. Like my mind goes pretty quickly in that. And then I I almost have trouble sometimes making adjustments after that. Because I'm like, this is just how this joke goes. (laughs) I'm pretty good at switching order and being like, well, that part's funnier, so it should go last. Or this, you know, this builds up this way. That stuff I do a lot. Or just even content-wise, like your whole chunk, you're like, oh, well, talking about the stuff about my family goes better after the stuff about dating, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the little jokes itself, like the bits itself, they're fairly formed when I have brought them to the stage. I think I get, I don't know if it's insecure or nervous or what it is. So I do think through them pretty thoroughly before I ever try them. And some people are like, well, I wrote down condoms, so I'm just going to see what happens when I'm up there. You know, like I don't, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting. I know some comics are very like, like Mark Marin, for instance. I mean, kind of a talky guy gets up there and just, I think his narcissism is, which is great, by the way. I 
I'm not, it's not a, <laughs> I'm not trying to disparage him when I right. say that yes. narcissistic, but if, you know, he has a podcast and the first 15 minutes of every podcast are about him and, <laughs> you know, what he's eaten for breakfast that, that morning and how he feels about his cats. But that's just his stand up style. And he gets up there and just kind of talks through things and works things out. It sounds like you're working, like you are pretty fully formed when you get up on stage in terms of the actual jokes that you're writing. And it's a very joke-centered performance. Yeah. I don't know why that is compared to other things or why I like doing crowd work, even though that is how I perform. Like, I Mm -hmm. like to be prepared and do my jokes and I want to do the material. But I... At this point, I do like doing crowd work. I was watching a comic this last weekend who I love. I think he's great. And there was some weird, like, just this lady had a really weird laugh. This guy in the back kind of kept yelling out at him, and he just didn't acknowledge it at all. And I was like, I don't think I could do that. You know, like, I'd need to say something, but he wanted to get through this new material he was working on. And so I think he just kept pushing through. And it wasn't distracting enough to like derail everything, but everyone noticed, you know. Yeah. And for me, I was like, I would have to say something, but I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> but the fa- but I do. I go up there and go, these are the jokes I want to do. And that's my plan. But if it goes somewhere else, then it just goes that way, I guess. Yeah. I, I've been to the comedy store a few times, and I always feel like way more connected and part of a collective experience if there's crowd work happening. Yeah. Uh, where the, and you also have this heightened sense as an audience member of fear that you're actually going to be engaged in some way. <laughs> They're going to ask you questions, and it's like, oh my gosh, what yeah. am I going to say? Do I do I have dangerous. to be funny? You know, like is he going to make fun of me? Is she going to make fun of me? But um, yeah, good good work on the on the crowd work. So the podcast. I don't want to talk to you about your podcast. You have Hug Life, and mm-hmm. also. Dumb pitches. Dumb pitches, yeah. Yeah. But Hug Life's been around for quite a while. You're in the 300s, right? For episodes. Yeah. It might be near in seven years, I think. Um, Yeah. That one's been around for a while. It's me and Mike Coletta, and we, it's a positive podcast. We talk about nice stuff and good news stories and play stupid games and positive spin topics and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, we started so long ago. So now it's like, well, maybe it's needed, but it could be a little. We're not trying to change the world or anything. Um, Just the idea that, you know, when you watch the news and it's hard, you're scrolling through your phone and it's just all this negative stuff. It can be overwhelming. It's like, well, then here, watch something stupid or listen to something stupid for uh, half an hour to an hour every week. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I listened to your most recent episode involving uh, Tony Hinchcliffe (laughs) and the cancel culture. And I'm glad you brought that up because I don't really watch the news. I look at social media way more than I look at the news. Right. Uh, but I did see that on my Twitter feed, that horrific um, bit that he did. And I don't know where he was. Any Austin? Is that yeah. where he was? Yeah, that's where everybody's moved. So Yeah. And I didn't look into it to hear how other comics were processing that. But it was nice to hear both of you address it the way you, that you did and how you brought up Louis C.K. And, and the folks that have been quote unquote canceled right. uh, and and what is going to happen with Tony. So that's a nice forum to have that discussion. I like your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. It's well, and we, we do challenge ourselves sometimes where it's like, okay, we have to positive spin, you know, um, 
not wearing a mask or something, you know, whatever, you know, something we don't necessarily agree with, but we will like challenge ourselves. And so the idea of the last episodes was like, okay, well, positive spin getting canceled, like actually getting canceled, you know, mm-hmm. which is as a comic, you don't want to get canceled. You'd hope that you wouldn't do something that would warrant that. But let's just do it from that perspective then. What would be good about actually getting canceled? So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just silly been fun. But but that stuff, that's what was what was going on, you know? Right. That was, yeah. What are your thoughts on cancel culture as it relates to comics and bits and just bad bits? Like Tony had a bad night. Yeah. Uh, or that, that was type interesting. Of thing. I think I mean I let some of my own experiences and bias get in the way when I watch stuff like that because I he had never been nice to me. I don't really like him separately. Can we, so. let, let's give some context to my listeners here because okay. you and I, this is like inside baseball because I listened to your podcast and I've seen this clip of Tony Hinchcliffe uh, doing this intro to his show that was very racist, but maybe you can describe it better than I can. Right. So it was the host of the show right before him. His name was Pang Dang and he had just finished his set which sounded like, and I'd read more, that sounded like it went pretty well, but he's Chinese and he was talking a lot about, um, you know, kind of the stop Asian hate thing and, and you know, just how Asian Americans are being attacked recently and making jokes about how America owes China, you know, all the people in that room go to Walmart and that's where they get their stuff from, you know, it's just, just basically like, hey, be nice to Asian people, here's some jokes about it. Right. So then he brings up Tony Hinchcliffe, who was on the show. I don't know if he's headlining or what. Just normal, you know, here's, he's been on Netflix and whatever. Here's Tony Hinchcliffe. And then it was really odd. I don't know. So Tony's known as being, I guess a ball buster would be the way, you know, you just kind of, he's mean. I don't know. That's his thing Mm -hmm. though. You know, like he, he has a podcast called Kill Tony where they listen to comics do a minute and then they just attack them, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're just like mean to him. And people like that. And then I'm sure people in the audience knew who he was and whatnot. So he gets on stage and he immediately starts, I don't even know how you would, just talking bad about the host comic that had been on and then using really like racial slurs and... Um, calling the audience race traitors for laughing at his jokes and like just weird. And then he did this really offensive Asian voice to like talk about his jokes. Yeah. And it just seemed really uh, just hateful. I don't know. It wasn't because I'll be honest, we mess with each other all the time when we get on stage, when we follow an act, it's very common to pick something out of somebody else's act. It's not necessarily that you're being mean, but it's like, you know, I'm just going to make a joke about that person or their, you know, I don't know, their shoes, whatever. It's just, it's common to be like, well, we can all see this. So I'm going to make a joke about it. But no, no one is using <laughs> a racial slur to describe the person that was just before them. You know, it was really poorly thought out i guess if he was trying to just get a to be fair or charitable he, to him yeah, yeah poorly to be a thought reaction, out <laughs> to, to get a reaction or make fun of him i don't know but it yeah. was it was really weird and then he just kept going and so what happened was i th- i think it was the friend of the host was filming his set for him like filming the host set and so the camera was still on so they get all this on camera and then the host shared it and was like yeah. well this was nice for asian heritage month you know so yeah. he got i mean 
I guess, you know, canceled in some ways. His agency dropped him and some other shows dropped him and stuff. Um, the thing, like, I am all for the freedom of speech part of stand-up and you can say whatever you want. And my hope is always that it polices itself because if you're going to go up there and spew hateful words, I'd want the audience to not react, you know, like that. And then that's enough. That should show you that you can't do that. But some people are so aggressive and so like that. It didn't even feel like jokes. If you watch the video, like it doesn't really feel like yeah. jokes. It feels very aggressive and yeah. like attacking. Yep. I was with, um, I'm with you on that. It just did not feel jokey at all. It just felt hateful and targeted Yeah, and mean. Right. And so for that, I do think some, like, I'm totally fine with repercussions of people. I mean, that's pretty blatantly racist. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he knows that that word is not a nice word to say. Like, it's just, you weren't, it wasn't an accident, you know? Yeah. Um, And then other things that are very, I don't know, sexual misconduct. I think you should get canceled. I don't know. That's just, mm -hmm. I mean, the term is odd, canceling, but. I think if you're hurting people, if you were in any other job, you wouldn't be allowed to say those things or do those things either. So why just because we're comedians, do you feel that, oh, it's cancel culture when really it's like, we just don't have an HR. <laughs> so, right. Well, um, <laughs> it's it's consequence culture. Yeah. It's like, let's have some consequences. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's fine. Like whatever those consequences are, they are an organic result of you know, a true reaction of the crowd and of the folks that support this comic um, financially, you know, with sponsors and whatnot. And that's just, isn't that capitalism at its best? Right. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. I feel like somebody tweeted that was like, well, yeah, this is just capitalism working now. You're getting things taken away because you made a poor decision. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I appreciated the way you talked about it on the podcast. And then I switched over to dumb pitches. <laughs> and and it's, it's a great concept, by the way. Tell my listeners what that is about. So that's a newer podcast you have, right? Yeah, that one's pretty new. Um, yeah, it's called Dumb Pitches. And the tagline is uh, talking to successful people about their worst ideas. So I have it's a lot of comics, but we've had some uh, musicians. I had Kylie Rothfield on, which you have also talked to her. Oh, that's how we connected, right? Yeah. Um, Very cool. And then some other like YouTubers and some different um, people just that basically they come on and I say, okay, here are your good ideas. We have to give you some credibility. So, you know, it's their credits. They've been on these shows. They wrote these shows. They wrote this book, they, whatever. And then I say, okay, what is, uh, what are your bad ideas or some of your bad ideas? And they have ranged so incredibly, <laughs> like just different and I give them like a little example list kind of of like, it could be anything, a business idea, a script, a bad relationship, a date, you know, whatever. And then just let them go from there. And so some people have had one idea that we really kind of get in and dissect and I ask a lot of questions. And then of course, no matter what, I feel like we get on this thing of like, how can we actually make this work? <laughs> um, and then some people have had like lists of like 20 and they're just like, here's all these terrible inventions I've thought of, you know, but they're hilarious and it's fun. And yeah, I enjoy it. So tell me about the hustle of being a comic. You're doing this full time now. You've been doing it full time for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And I think I heard you talk about trying to get on the potluck stage at the comedy store and that there were like hundreds of comics that had signed up for this open mic T tell us about that type of hustle and what 
effort it takes to actually get out there and be seen and be heard as a comic trying to break in to become more successful. It's a really interesting. I mean, I think my biggest theory is that there is no one way to do it or no right way to do it. I think, I mean, I mean, especially now we've seen people who have been doing stand up for two years that have a good TikTok, and now they can sell out a club. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's much different now, but it is this thing. If you want to do stand up, which is what I wanted to do. And there's some people who do stand up, but they want to act or, you know, other, other things like that. So figuring out what exactly you want to do is part of it. Um, there is this inherent like hustle, work hard thing when you first start, which is get on stage as much as possible. Don't worry about the quality of it. <laughs> Don't worry, you know, just the repetition and stuff. And so you see a lot of people just going from open mic to open mic, doing as many shows as they can, which is great. And I think that's helpful. I think when you get in the bigger cities, it it skews in a weird way though, where they'll do open mics and hang out at the same place forever so that hopefully they'll get on stage at the comedy store or the laugh factory or whatever it is. And then they have five minutes and that's it. And then I don't know if you hope that the right person's in the audience and then you get a late night set or whatever. But for me, the road has always been what made me funny and what made me better. And so probably about three years in, I was like, I'm going to do as much road stuff as I can. And then that was when I started to make enough money to do it. Um, You can't really make a whole lot of money staying in one city, no matter what the city is. Mm -hmm. So that has become part of, I also like doing those shows are better, you know, going out places, even in the middle of nowhere, they're just excited that somebody came to, (laughs) (laughs) somebody came to their town, you know? Yeah. And, but that's still like, I just wanted to do stand, you know, that's still at the base of all of it is the doing the stand up. So it makes sense that I want to go and get better and add more and go to different places but if you're like, I just want a really good 10 minutes and then I want to sell this script, like maybe your idea of the hustle is different than right. mine or what's going to work, you know, is different than mine. But So yours is a road-based hustle. I think so. Or just, yeah. Because then, I mean, now I can have, I do more time. You know, I headline more places. I uh, can sell more stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it, it eventually becomes really a financial thing because for a long time you live this life that you're told you're supposed to live, which is the share a studio with another person yeah, and, you know, barely eat and also worked for Postmates at the same time, whatever, you know, but then at some point you're old enough, I would assume, or you just get smart enough to go, what if I did it a little bit different and then I could actually have a home and a family and eat better and, you know, like yeah. not have to work every single weekend, which is just now kind of what's happening for me, which I'm enjoying. And I think it helps me creatively to balance. That is something I started preaching to younger comics. And I don't know if that's what they want to hear. I think they want to hear the like, go to every open mic ever. And I'm like, no, have a life. So then you can talk about it and relate to people. Because mm-hmm. not everybody's just going to open mics every night. <laughs> so um, yeah, the balance has been huge for me. I think it's been helpful creatively. It helps me with my writing and then kind of these other things that I've started to create on the side or, you know, 
focus on the podcasts and the the YouTube stuff and has just been better now that I've been able to kind of stabilize at least part of my life. Yeah. So the tools of monetization then are obviously, you know, the road gigs, you're getting paid to perform live. Um, and then I noticed, I th thought I heard something about Patreon. Do you have a Patreon account as well? Um, um, for Hug Life, we have a Patreon. For me, I really, <laughs> I've um, equated it to choosing an airline mileage plan <laughs> mm -hmm. and sticking with one. So in the last year when everything changed and, you know, there was months where I wasn't doing anything live, it was all over the internet. I chose YouTube as the platform I wanted to focus on. And... I post more on there, but I did more live streams and stuff like that. And so just recently, because we had brought it to a monetization level, which is just ads and stuff, and that's that same kind of trickle in, you know, Spotify is the same thing where you can listen to my album 20,000 times and then I'll get $2, you know, it's not <laughs> that helpful, but right. they have another, uh, a membership tier there, which I have utilized on YouTube. So you can do a membership. There's like three different levels. You get the podcast early, you get behind the scenes episodes of like my bad ideas. And then at the top tier, you get all of that, but then you get full shows, you get full 50 minute stand up shows um, on there. And that's been, it's just more helpful financially. It's not, you know, it's still a lot of marketing. And I wanted to be able to give people, because some people, especially on YouTube, I did a lot of research of like, okay, what are some of these other channels doing and they're like oh i just help me out give me some money and there's nothing like you don't get anything and i was like well i don't want to do that so yeah. you know i put the extra effort in to create other content that you know i wouldn't normally want to put out 50 minute sets <laughs> that are, are new and some of it's crowd work and some of it you know I'm, it's not a special so i was like well if people want to support me and want to see that then here you go you know yeah that can be a special thing just for you so yeah, it's they're all different. And then like the albums, like all the streaming services are not great. It's better if you buy it from me. Yeah. Um, but then Sirius XM, if it's on there, that is good. You know, like there's just uh, it's just an odd hodgepodge of other monetization separate from actually doing live shows. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to get your comedy on the Sirius uh, comedy channels? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. It took a while, which was a little disappointing when my album came out, but it, it ended up being on there. So that's good and super helpful because now I don't have to do anything and hopefully it just plays every once in a while, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, there's a lot of funny comics on the, you know, there's like three or four comedy channels now, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, when they took... They had originally taken the whole album. Normally what they'll do is they'll go through and be like, well, we want these four or five tracks. But they took my whole album, which was great, um, for the three, there's three channels that they wanted it for, which was the Laugh USA is like the normal clean one. Raw Dog is the dirty one, of course. <laughs> um, and then there's one called uh, She's So Funny, which is all female comics. And so, um, so now it's been played on those, but for a while it just hadn't. But that's, I did it through a label and that was kind of their their thing. So I try not to be annoying and just hope for the best. Mm -hmm. um, that eventually worked out. Well, going back to your YouTube channel, it is really impressive what you've done with your channel. I mean, I have a channel, but it's, I'm a total novice. I don't, I just put everything on there. It's not, you know, subdivided into any sort of categories and it's a mess, but you're, you, you put a lot of work into your YouTube channel. 
Thank you. Uh, yeah, I have. Um, it was, I just really never th- thought about it until maybe four years ago. That sounds about right. Four years ago, um, I was on a show called Laughs, on a TV show called Laughs. And it was just like a clip show. It was on Fox at like, you know, 11.30 p.m. or whatever. And some, I would get a little bit of a trickle in every once in a while when I was on an episode and get a few more followers and stuff. Uh, and then they decided to put it on YouTube. They decided to do clips on YouTube. And Kelsey Cook has the highest for them. And then I have the second highest viewed clip with, you know, it's like over a million views, which is insane. And I get none of that. (laughs) (laughs) But but because it started to get so popular, there's a couple of clips that are pretty high up there for them. It just trickled down to me. You know, I got more, the people who actually really liked me enough would then kind of figure out where I was and came to me. And so it was right when YouTube had actually changed their monetization rules where it went from anybody could do it to you had to have a thousand subscribers and I had like 150 at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, that doesn't apply to me then whatever. And then this video gets very popular and all of a sudden I have 900 and then I was like, well, damn it. Now I care. You know, I didn't before, but now I do. <laughs> and so it got over a thousand. Then they changed it again. You had to have a certain amount of watch time, whatever. So I started really focusing on that and then putting out new stuff and more stand-up on there because for a long time we were like don't put your stand-up out because then we want people to come and see it and then they'll know what it is and now they're like put everything out on tiktok (laughs) so that they'll find you (laughs) um so i just started putting more stuff out and that helped and then yeah this last year was like well what if i put lots of stuff out and give you sketches and meditations and stand-up and lots of different stuff and now the youtube uh the podcast that was kind of the focus of it actually for dumb pitches. And then the helium network wanted the audio. So I was like, okay, it started out as just a video thing, but yeah. So what is the Holy grail for comics in terms of uh, what you are aspiring to accomplish? Is it the half hour comedy special, the one hour comedy special on HBO or Netflix? Uh, What are you searching for in terms of, you know, the stepping stone, the next step and, you know, your definition of success as a comic. Yeah, I think that changes a lot too, you know. I mean, a few years ago, we didn't know what a Netflix special was probably, but I think that's a big one. An hour Netflix or HBO special is pretty huge. And that's always been, an HBO special has always been pretty fancy. You know, Comedy Central Half Hour was a big thing for a while, a little less now. But Late Night was a huge thing. It's still pretty... That's something I want really badly is an, a late-night set. Um, what do you mean by a late-night really set? changing. Like Conan or something? Or Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, of course. I like to set my goals right when a show is ending. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, like The Tonight right. Show or something, that would right. be great. Those, those credits still help you as far as getting booked in clubs. So that would be exciting. But it's also something that I've just wanted for a long time. So that would be great. I want somebody to do a special... I don't really care who it is at this point, you know, mm-hmm. for a long time. Like I was like, I want to do an album, but I don't want to make it myself. I want a label to do it. And then a label found me. So hopefully it still works out that way. But I think, yeah, having a special and then being able to be picky about where you play. I honestly think that's the biggest top goal for everybody is like, I want to be able to 
play all the A clubs and headline them and do theaters and be able to set rules, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. and not seem like a diva when you're just like, no, I just want to have a good show. I want to be in theaters and I want to not have to do seven shows in a weekend when I can fill one room to do two, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. I think it really comes down to it. And I don't know if comics always want to admit it, but that balance becomes more and more important. And so being successful actually helps you be more balanced. It helps you be picky. I mean, you see some of the guys who worked really hard for a long time and now have those Netflix specials and stuff. And you look at their schedules and you're like, oh yeah, they're doing three shows in September, <laughs> but right. they're huge theaters, you know, like mm -hmm. I get it. Um, and th that is, I mean, obviously money is helpful, but being able to get to a point where you don't have to work so hard that you might burn out mm. is, is probably pretty important to what success looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And for fun. them, obviously, they're like, I'm going to do a Netflix special every year. I'm like, great. Good for you. But <laughs> not not me yet. <laughs> well, I think you've just described uh, probably the quest of a lot of creatives, no matter what field they're in. They, you know, they want to be able to pick and choose the work that they do. They want to be able to make more money, but not necessarily for the sake of making money, but just so that you're not scrambling <laughs> to survive and you can do what you want to do, but in a more pure way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That makes sense. I get, yeah. well, and everybody, I think every artist we've heard actors talk about it, musicians, it's that creative like freedom and wanting and feeling like you can do what you actually want to create. And that's the part of the cultivating your own audience with stand up that is really what's at the core of it because I can do really big shows opening for a Brad Upton who I love, who's great but his audience isn't mine, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't have the creative freedom there to do exactly what I would do. So if I cultivate my own audience, that's a room full of people who are ready for me, then I feel really comfortable and I can do exactly the joke the way I wanted to do it or mm -hmm. whatever, you know? So yeah, I think success in general for a true artist is just being able to be successful enough to be as creatively free as you can be. Mm-hmm. Two more questions. Okay. <laughs> uh, I know this is going long. So how many female comics are out there when you're on the road? Are you the minority or is it about 50-50 or what is the split? Uh, definitely not 50-50. Um, as far as being on the road, there is even less than there are in general. When you go to some of the bigger cities, so in LA or, or New York, Chicago, there's a lot of female comics. I wouldn't say it's 50-50 even there, but it's, you know, there's more. But then the amount of women who are actually on the road, especially at my level where it's this middle between feature and headliner, there's, I mean, you can look at a calendar and not see a woman on it at mm. all, you know? And for the most part, when I'm on the road, I am very lucky if there's another woman on the show with me. Mm. Unless they, unless I'm headlining and they're like, we're going to make it all women because it's a circus. Um, it's like, you can't just have it be a normal show, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, there's not, not very many as a feature at all. Um, and then not for people like me who aren't famous or haven't had, you know, the Netflix special or whatever. There's not very many female headliners um, 
that don't have those credits. So it's a lot of work too. And honestly, to be a woman on the road in, you know, Oklahoma or whatever, it can be a little unnerving, a little, it feels a little unsafe at times. So I totally understand when people are like, "Mm, I don't think I'm going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. Um, What advice would you give to young folks, say a room full of high school students, uh, college freshmen who want to do what you did in your junior year, get up on stage and tell jokes. Oh, to do that specifically. Um, Oh, I think just for young people in general, the biggest thing that I wished I had done was tried more things. Like don't let people tell you what you should be or what you're good at. I say that because I was always very convinced I was like a science mind and I was an athlete and I like sports and like that was, you know, that was who I was. And I really never gave myself any credit for being creative or writing or any of that. And now I'm like, what if I had focused on that earlier? What if somebody had told me you're a good writer, you know? Um, So the biggest thing is like try as much as you can and write as much as you can. If you want to be a comedian, write it first. I get people that come up to me after shows all the time. They're like, well, I'm thinking about trying an open mic, which is, if you're thinking about it, do it. But be prepared, you know, mm-hmm. write some stuff, see how it goes. If it's if you want to do it just because you're funny at work sometimes, I don't know if that's the right reason. <laughs> well, there's plenty of people. I'm very quiet when I had day jobs. So it's plenty of people that I used to work with, I'd be like, you do stand up. They're like, you never talked. And I'm like, Oh, I just didn't like you. That's why. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think uh, my life more and more becomes, why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I do that before? Not in a regret way, but like, look at what happens when I do, you know, look at what happens when I do take a chance, when I do actually do things, usually it's good. So Mm -hmm. Try it. And here's the other part. Like, no matter what happens, the worst thing that can happen is that it doesn't go well or someone says no or, you know, don't. I think we're afraid to ask a lot just because they might say no. And then what? You're still in the same position you were. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, just if you want to try it, try it. Go and watch. Watch as much as possible. If you're stand-up or anything else, I think people get competitive a lot and they don't, you know, don't want to watch other people's art. But... I think it makes you better. I think it, um, yeah, it just helps. You're always going to have a favorite, you know? You might as well go. Sometimes it'll make you feel better about yourself. I don't know. Um, And then my biggest advice for anybody getting into stand-up is remember that it is a job. It can be a job. And so that means don't be a dick to people. Be nice, be professional, show up on time, don't get too drunk. You know, just because it has a little bit different environment doesn't mean it's still... I just, I know people who are very untalented that work a lot because they are professional. (laughs) Like it can get you plenty of places and it gets you booked again. It gets you to come back. You're not going to lose fans because you were too hammered to do your set. You know, Mm -hmm. just remember that it is, if it's something you care about, and then, then treat it like that. Be professional and nice. Nice. Well, great advice. Put yourself you. out there. Be <laughs> professional. Don't listen to what others say you're good at and follow you know, your own instincts, it sounds like. Yeah. That, yeah. Thank you for summarizing it. That was good. 
Well, Monica Nevy, thank you so much for sharing your story on my podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>